Merry Christmas, Oak Grove. If you're new with us this morning, my name's Cody Alvarez, and I'm the, the pastor here. We've, uh, we're picking up in John 1. We're, we're in a series called God Among Us, and this will be the last of the series. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And <clears throat> at the end of the service, those, those candles that you've received, we'll, we'll do the, the, the candle lighting portion of the service as a response to seeing the light of wor- the world dwelling among us. And you know, at the end, what we're going to do is we're going to sing uh, Silent Night, acapella. It's real pretty. Um, but just one thing about judging before you have all the information. I, I did that in the first service. Brandon was up here singing. I was like, that dude's off today. That, does, that just does not sound good. And um, I'm, I'm getting after it. I'm singing. Then I realize that's not Brandon. I didn't turn my mic off. <laughs> it was a joyfulish noise. So they 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 got that treat. You guys, Lord willing, won't have to. But let's let's pray and we'll jump right in. God, <clears throat> please open our eyes to your truth. Lord, I pray that we would leave here encouraged by your word, empowered by your spirit. God, and I just pray that we would be your light in the darkness, that your light would shine through us. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see your, your, your gospel message and that they would respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> if, if you came this morning and you're looking for uh, like the Christmas story, that's not really what we're doing today. We had the live nativity, you know, we had donkeys and wise men. I see one in here, so I'm not going to make a crack. <laughs> Maybe wise guys. Uh, we had uh, shepherds. We, we had the whole nine. Matthew and, Mark's, uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel, that's what they talk about. They, they, uh, they, they tell us about really how Jesus came in the world, and they set the stage for what Jesus came to do. Well, John's gospel doesn't talk about mangers or shepherds or angels or the baby. Instead, we learn exactly who it is who's lying in the manger and what he's came in the world to do. You know, I remember when my, my, my girl was a little girl. She's a big girl now, but when she was little... Um, at Christmas time, we'd get her these presents and she wouldn't know what to do with them. You'd have to be like, hey, that's this and it does this. And I think a lot of people with Jesus, they, they understand he's a present. They understand he's some, some, somehow God's gift to us. But, you know, a lot of us are working with very, very different dictionaries when we're talking about Jesus. And it makes it very, very confusing who, who he is, what, he's do, what he came to do. Who is this baby in the manger? And what we're going to see this morning in John, we're going to know exactly who this baby is. So our main point for the morning, our what is true statement is, Jesus is the creator who became a part of his creation in order for his creatures to become children of God. 
It's wordy, so I'm going to read it again. Jesus is the creator who became a part of his creation in order for his creatures to become children of God. So what do we do with that? <clears throat> What's the application for us? We are to live this new life bought by the blood of God, and he's going to allow us to shine his love through us. So let's read our text together, starting in verse 1. Man, verse 1 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines into the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on this first part, this who is Jesus in verses 1 through 5. And Jesus is, he's created all things. So look at verse 1 with me again. It says, <clears throat> excuse me. It says, in the beginning... Where else in the Bible does it say in the beginning? In the beginning, Genesis. It means the beginning. John is purposely trying to take your mind back. And how does Genesis 1 start? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was God. This, this is the first thing that God wanted the people of Israel to know about this God who has brought them out of Egypt. This is the first thing that he wanted them to know, he, that he was in the beginning and that this God that they were following created all things. You got to remember, the Israelites had just been freed from Egypt and they needed to know who this God is. How powerful is he? What has he done? John's book doesn't start with in the beginning, God. Rather, it starts with, in the beginning was the Word. That should have, all these Jewish readers, anyone listening to it, 
It should have been like nails on a chalkboard to them. You know, like when your favorite song comes on the radio and your co-pilot, uh, you know, you're in there singing, you, you start getting into it and they like miss every word of the song and it just, I don't know the word for it, but emotionally it's this feeling, mm, just it's nails on, it, it bothers me. It, especially if it's the one I love. Well, these people, they, they knew the song. They knew what the next words should have been. But God specifically changed it. He intentionally changed it to grab their attention because he wanted them to know about this word. Like, Israel, like the Israelites who had just been freed from Egypt, they needed to know who this God was that they were following into this unknown promised land and how powerful he is, we are on a similar journey to the eternal promised land. And we who are following Jesus, as we go into this unknown, we need to know who this guy is. How powerful is he? What has he done? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So this, this word, the word is God, the word was with God. Verse 14 gives us some insight. I know I've spoiled it already, but I think you know if you're here who this word is. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. In these first few verses, we find out that Jesus not only is the Son of God, but Jesus is, the, is also from the beginning, but also that Jesus is God. I want you to see that John is making a distinction between the Father and the Son while using um, the singular word for God. Look, look back in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... <clears throat> The word was with God. It doesn't say God's. It's, it's, it's very specific. One God. And the word was singular God. He's making a distinction, but making them one. God presents himself in the scripture as a Trinitarian God. Um, as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're like, Cody, this is great information but I finally talked my cousin into coming to church. Why? This is, this is the day of the year where we have the most visitors out of all the day. Why, why are we doing this? That's exactly why. I want you to leave this place today with no question of who this Jesus is and what the claim we are making is. John 1, 1 is a major point of debate with all the major world religions and all the cults that have came out of Christianity. You see, Muslims believe that they believe in Jesus. Did you know that? Muslims believe in Jesus. They just believe he was a prophet. Jews believe in Jesus. They just don't believe that he's the son of God. Hindus, Zoroastrianism, um, the Baha'is, the, the, of the seven major world religions, every one of them recognize Jesus, but they don't recognize that he's the son of God and God the son. They reject his deity 
and in rejecting his deity and rejecting his sacrifice, there is no salvation. When you go further and you look at these cults that surround Christianity that want to claim Christianity like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they take John 1 and they reimagine it. You can't even hardly say interpret it. They reimagine it and make it a point where they deny the Trinity. So when they say, we're Christians too, the reality is that they're not because they reject the Christ of Christianity. They reject the Christ of the Bible. I, I want to be clear, and I don't want to be mean, but I want to say it clear as I can. You cannot reject Christ and be a Christian. You cannot reject Christ and be a Christian. The Jehovah Witness, for example, in their New World Translation says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. When a Jehovah Witness comes to the door, take them to John 1. This denies the Trinity. This makes Jesus a demigod instead of one with the Father. The Mormon Bible says this, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son. So he's even separating the Word from the Son. And the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. The Mormons don't acknowledge that Jesus is a part of creation, nor do they acknowledge the Trinity, but they definitely are making him a sub-God. And Mormon theology, by the way, has a multiplicity of gods, this word being one of them. They separate Jesus from the word. They have, it's a a system of demigods like Arianism from the first century or Gnosticism. This is not the Christ of the Bible. Therefore, they are not Christians. You understand that? They're denying Jesus in their assertion of Jesus because they're working with a totally different dictionary than you are. The the Jehovah Witnesses' Greek and Hebrew translation of their Bible was released in 1950. That's 36 years after their, their cult began. It's also 36 years after they released their Bible. They needed time to go back and edit the Greek and edit the Hebrew in order to make it match the New World Translation. That's that's not me standing up here making that up. That is factual. Go look it up. Joseph Smith, on the other hand, he doesn't even claim to be really doing translation. He claims prophetic translation, which enables him to add whatever he feels like to it. If you look at his translation from the Greek, not only is he utterly mistranslating the easiest part of the New Testament, John is the easiest Greek in all the Bible. And Joseph Smith can't do that simple translation. He claims prophetic translation so he can add whatever he feels like to it and he can change it however he feels like. In so doing, he's inserting tons of words 
and he's changing the meaning of the text. You can't just edit the New Testament to make Jesus fit your worldview and your desired religion. For some of you here today, you've not even given that much effort. You're just trying to edit Jesus to fit your lifestyle. You're trying to edit Jesus to fit your uh, whatever sin that you love, to fit your sexuality, to to fit your son or your daughter's sexuality, to fit your worldview. You can't edit Jesus. Jesus is not, he does not care about making you comfortable. He does not care how you feel about who he is. He asserts who he is and you have the opportunity to get in line or he will put you in a different line. He is the king. That's who that baby is in the manger. He, come, he came as Lord. Not so that you can fit his worldview, or not so that you can make him fit your worldview, but that you would change your worldview to fit his. And that would mean that he's king and that you obey. Let's get back to this idea of these, not, not, letting, not editing the New Testament to make Jesus fit your desired religion, that there's a lot of people who come after the New Testament. By the way, 2000, there's been 2,000 years worth of effort towards that. We have 5,800 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. We have quite a bit more um, pieces of the New Testament than that. And guess what every one of these ancient manuscripts say? And the word was God. And the word was God. Jesus from the beginning, Jesus being God is a foundational belief for all Christianity for all time. In these manuscripts that we have, these manuscripts, have went, they went across continents within just a couple of hundred years. And now, you know, 2,000 years later, we've collected, we've researched, we've looked at things. Of these ancient manuscripts, how, what do you think the percentage of error is that we have in them? I mean, you're talking about thousands of documents, thousands of pieces of documents. We're even counting the pieces of documents within this. 0.5%. You're talking about scribal errors in punctuation. You can trust the translation in your hand. Also, think about this. This means that there's a 99.5% accuracy to the, to the text that's in your hand. Vody Bauckham, in a sermon that I suggest everyone go listen to, it's called Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. He's, he's talking about these ideas, and he, he brings up Julius Caesar does anybody in the room question if Julius Caesar existed? No? What about the details of his life that we have? Julius Caesar has less than 12 manuscripts about his life. And I forget the guy's name who wrote the life of Julius Caesar, but we know he lived a couple hundred years after the life of Julius Caesar. So, The things that he's writing down are only orally passed down and no one in the room will question the veracity of Julius Caesar's life and and his works. Uh, Aristotle, the greatest uh, philosopher the world has known probably outside of Jesus, 
his poetics, there's less than 10 copies that exist, manuscripts, ancient manuscripts. And they were written 1,400 years after the original, and no one distrusts whether or not these things are true. Socrates, no manuscripts. Plato, uh, right after he died, wrote uh, what Socrates uh, thought. No one distrusts if that's what Socrates actually thinks. Homer and his Iliad, Homer's Odyssey. There's, this is, this is the, the largest one. There, there's more of these existing, these manuscripts existing than anything else. But the original was written 2,100 years after his life. The New Testament was written tens of years after the life of Jesus. The New Testament was written in a time where the same dudes that killed Jesus, they could, they could walk up to the guy who wrote it because he signed his name to it and be like, hey, bro, it didn't happen that way. These miracles, they were written about during the lifetime of the people who experienced them. No one discredited them. They just said, what did the Jewish leaders keep telling them in the book of Acts? Keep your mouth shut. They didn't say it wasn't true. Challenging our manuscripts is laughable. And I'm sorry, we live in a part of the country or a part of Texas where this is, in churches, one of the mainline thoughts. Challenging our manuscript is laughable because it only comes from a place of ignorance because there is a preponderance of evidence about the veracity of what you hold in your hand. These people who claim this, they, they have a theology. This idea is called textual criticism. And the goal is to undermine the work of God in giving us the Bible. It's to make you doubt whether or not that you can trust this book that's in your hands. I hate this theology. I hate it. And this theology is the primary idea being taught at most of your Baptist schools that you would support. And it's a theology held by many preachers who carry degrees from these institutions that you would respect. And they are wolves. These mainline religions that you'll see, these, Christ, these, Christian, this, these Christian groups that started out east and have moved across the, the, the country over the last 200 years, they accepted this early and they're dead. Because it leads you to liberalism. It leads you to say God didn't really say I mean, isn't this the same lie that the serpent made? In the garden, what does the serpent do when he came to Eve? Did God really say? This textual criticism idea taught at, did you know Harvard and Princeton were theology schools? They are. That's how they started. Do you know what they say? This idea of textual criticism? Can you trust that? 
on this idea of sexuality, on this idea of um, the way you should live your life, the way you should do your... Did God really say? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I hate the theology. And it leads people to hell. Arm yourself, church. For those who want to doubt whether or not that this really says Jesus is God, I'm telling you, it is the simplest Greek in the New Testament. And I'm, anybody who has access to the internet can do this, so don't, I'm not here trying to show you like, hey, I can read Greek, because I can't well. But, so this, this last phrase in this sentence, I'm going to read it to you in the Greek, and I'm going to translate it as we go. It says, Kai theos um, es ho logos. Kai and theos, God. Um, in is was. O or ho is the and logos word. Okay, the word placement is different, but it literally translates, and God was the word. We, we changed the word placement because we're English speakers and it makes more sense to us. Anyone who wants to deny that is rejecting all the evidence that we have. Jesus is God, and all that deny this truth deny God. And they deny the salvation that is offered by God through his sacrifice. I get that we all want to be nice. Like, we don't want to think about our family members not being Christians. We don't want to think about our family members going to hell because of their belief. We don't want to think about them going to hell because of their sin. I mean, we love them. For the most part, they're upstanding individuals, right? But church, I want you to understand this. It is wrong for you to affirm that they are Christian too if they deny the Christ of the Bible. It is wrong for you to affirm their salvation. And when you do, when you do, you are denying Jesus Christ yourself. Everybody wants to get on Peter for denying Jesus the three times, right? But how often do we do for the sake of being nice? In the time of John, when Christians would bend a knee before Caesar, what were they doing? They were rejecting Christ not to deal with a conflict. And that's hard. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be ugly. Or when they accepted Caesar and the other gods. They didn't want the conflict. Or the, the Jews would pull them in front of them and they would say, renounce Jesus. If they did it, the, the, the churchy word for that is called apostasy. The, the way that we would say it is denying Jesus. Christians for thousands of years have been killed for this one issue. Jesus is God. 
They had the option to reject Christ or find conflict. Reject Christ or be persecuted. Rejecting Christ is saying something else about him and how we're saved. Whether by works or by Mary or by or that Jesus is a demigod or that God lets everybody in heaven despite what they believe or that God doesn't punish sin. All these things, church, are a denial of Jesus. And by your agreement, for the sake of keeping the peace, you are denying Jesus yourself. Just because it's at your kitchen table for the holidays with people you know and not in a courtroom and not standing before an emperor it's the same. And you need to understand what's on the line. What's on the line is the testimony of Jesus Christ and that person's soul. The reason most of us capitulate is because we want what Vody Bacham calls to, to, to hold to the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. Church, we've been nice for a long time. And you know what being nice does? We're nicing people all the way to hell. We're, we're nicing people away from the exclusive message of Jesus Christ and his salvation. We're nicing people away from the way that they can actually get to heaven and have eternal life. We're nicing people away from the deity of Jesus. Now, I'm, not, I'm certainly ca not calling you to be rude. For heaven's sake, don't be rude. That's dumb. I'm calling you to love, and I'm calling you to be kind. It's unloving to not tell the truth, even if it causes conflict. Causing conflict is not unloving. It's unkind to avoid this conflict. Church, we need to operate, operate in love and in kindness. It's definitely unloving and unkind to Jesus to allow these people to continue to slander his name and his work without you speaking up. Let's look back at our text. He was, starting in verse two, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made, was made. Not only is Jesus God, not only was he in the beginning with God, but Jesus is the one who made everything. In Genesis, God created by speaking. Jesus is the eternal word of God. Jesus is is the Father's agent of creation. Jesus created all things out of nothing, and Jesus created both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Moses, trying to wrap his mind around who God is when he met God at the burning bush, he says, who are you? Who should I tell them has sent me? And the, the, the answer that Jesus gave them from the bush Tell them it's, it's theological and practical. Tell them I am has sent you. He always was 
always is and always will be. The I am has sent you. When Jesus asked multiple times in the book of John who he is, he answers in the same way as he did in Exodus. And that's exactly why they wanted to kill him. Look at the screen at John 8, 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. Abraham lived thousands of years before this moment. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And every jaw would have dropped. They all understood that he said Yahweh. He, in the Greek, it's ergo me. I am that I am. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That statement might be subtle to us, but the Jews understood what he was doing, and he was claiming there that he is God. He does it over and over and over in the book, taking that I am name. Jesus understood himself to be God. The question that you have to answer for yourself is, who is this Jesus? And if you come up with anything less than God the Son, the creator of the heavens and earth, then you've missed it. And you will miss eternity with him. That's what we're celebrating today. And that song that Brandon uh, sang, he's talk, uh, it, it, the, the Gloria one, you know, there's that line that says, and she's staring in the face of God. That's what that baby in the manger was. That's who he is. God in flesh. Verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and, when, and the darkness has not overcome it. When Jesus came, he brought life, he brought light. This world is dark, it's broken. The Father, God the Father, he plundered heaven. He gave us the most valuable thing in all of heaven. And that is his son. To purchase our pardon so that we could have eternal life. Jesus coming to earth and dying for us. If there was any other way to get to heaven, do you think God would have sent his son? And if God went to that length to come and die on our behalf and you reject him, do you think there's any hope for you if on that day of judgment you have any other answer than beside, because of your son, I'm here? Jesus shined his love out into the darkness. We killed him. God allowed his sinful creatures to torment, to torture his son and to hang his son on a cross. And that night, it looked dark, but three days later, the sun came up. The sun rose from the grave, proving that he had power over death and over darkness and over sin. 
and all who put their faith and trust in him will be saved. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm pleading with you. Believe, put your faith in him. Go read the book. Find somebody in this room. We would love to help walk you in to what this, what this relationship looks like. That baby in that manger on that first Christmas was so much more than just a cute baby. He was God's divine assault against sin and darkness. He was the eternal God coming to earth to be the sacrificial lamb and to purchase our salvation. As we reflect on Jesus coming to earth, I, I want as best as we can to try to wrap our minds around who this child is in this manger. The word who was in the beginning with God, who is God, and who created all things. That's who this baby is that we're celebrating today and tomorrow. Real quick, we we're going to look at the last two points. I told you most of it was in the first. Starting in verse 9, Jesus, the light of the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 9, verse 9 says that he's the true light. We didn't really discuss verse 5 in, at length. I want to draw your attention back to the light shining into the darkness, and that the darkness did not overcome it. In Western philosophy, we really like dualism. That, that's the idea that there's counterparts. Uh, good is the counterpart to evil. Light is the counterpart to darkness. That, that kind of thing. They, they didn't have this mindset. That's not, that's not a thing here. Darkness is not the counterpart of light. Darkness is the absence of light. Think about in Genesis uh, 1, there's darkness over the deep. And then in Genesis 1, 3, God said, let there be light and light shined out into the darkness, didn't it? When God spoke, when he did this, light broke through. The word Jesus, this logos, is God's divine self-expression. When, when Jesus, the light of the world and the life came to earth, light broke through the darkness. The love of God was made known. Light, darkness has no power over light. We, we try to make uh, like evil, the devil, the, the, the fallen angels like, man, this is, there's this powerful war going on. Think about Revelation 19. Like that's the most unclimactic battle in history. Everything's building up to Jesus and Satan and the Antichrist and the beast facing off with all the armies of men. And you know how that battle goes? Before he ever turns his attention to the, the, to, the, uh, to the armies, he takes those three, throws them in prison, and throws the jail in hell. That's how that happens. Then he goes on to slaughter the nations. Like there's, it's not a battle of powers He's allowing people during this time to believe or to reject him.
Jesus is the love of God. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, explains that he's the light this way in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light, and when you believe in him, you will see things as they really are. In John 8, Jesus goes on to explain to these Pharisees that those who die in darkness, those who reject him, they will die in their sins and they will be judged for their sins. Jesus, what he's doing for you right now, if you're in here and you don't know him, he's shining light on how things really are. Light, the light of Christ is exposing what you're the eternal destiny that awaits you if you don't believe in him. Jesus, he, he shows us how things really are. And we humans, we are in a desperate situation in need of divine intervention and God provided exactly what we needed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to reveal to us, to shine light on how things really are. And when we believe in Jesus, that means Jesus comes to live in us. The, we talked about it last week. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And by the way, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are not New Testament constructs. They're all over the Old Testament. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, we are to shine the, the light of Christ to the world. God put his Holy Spirit within us so that we are to spread his light across our city, our county, our country, across continents. We should be revealing things as they really are. And I'm going to say across all those places, but also across your Christmas table. You are to reveal things as they really, really are because you know that these people are going to have to stand before God and give an account for what they've done. And we will too. Let's look at our last, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus gives new life. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, they gave him the right, or he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The light came into the world to give life. Jesus is the great life giver. Jesus in Genesis 1 created all things and gave everything life. We broke this world that he gave us and he came back to give us life, to shine light into the dark, broke world that we, that we messed up and we were spiritually dead. He came to breathe new life into us. It says we now have the right to become children of God. This word right, it's an okay translation, but the word is power. He's given us the power. He's empowered us. He's, by his power, made us the children of God. Salvation is not a transactional thing. Trans Salvation is a miraculous thing. 
And he says, by faith, you'll be saved. How much faith? It doesn't tell us how much. It just says, believe and receive. Salvation is a greater work of God than any of the other miracles in all the Bible. Because he's changing a dead heart, a dead spiritual heart into something that lives and worships him. Jesus says, or John says that we're, we're not only made of uh, children of God and we're not born uh, of the will of man. We're not built, born of the will of flesh. Whose will are we born by into this new life? The will of God, but of God. It is the work of God and only God can make this thing happen. Christmas is when we celebrate this new creation life that he's enabled for us to have. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory as the son, of, uh, the son from the father full of grace and truth. Praise God that God came among us. God today is here among us. God is dwelling among us because he dwells inside of us who are believers. And it's his desire for us to continue this illuminating work of the word to go and make him known in the world. And I'm going to ask the band to come back and we're going to end in a time of reflection. And as we do this candle lighting, I want you to reflect on letting the light of Christ shine through you. Jesus is the light and the life of the world. He gave us his spirit so that we could go out and be light bearers. And as we go into this time of response, these candles, what they do is that they're representing the flame of the Holy Spirit bought by, brought by Jesus to dwell in us. And this is how God spread his message for 2,000 years. One person enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, shining his light out, sparking your heart, sparking someone else's heart. And as these candles go and they light one another, I want you to understand that's the picture that we see. Let's be light bearers together.